Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and with me is Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi Jan, how are you? Last episode I said you were sunning yourself in the south of France, but you are actually at an energy efficiency conference there. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Hi Dave, yes, um, that was an amazing conference. We had 400 people from all over Europe and a few Americans as well and Australians um, and we met uh, at the Côte d'Azur, at the uh, southern coast of France in the Mediterranean Sea. And um, it was really the first big conference that I attended um, since um, the pandemic began in 2000. And just seeing everybody uh, you know, in, in such a, an amazing location and talking about energy was really energizing and um, really enjoyable. So it was, it was just um, feeling like we, we are... Um, actually making progress, meeting like-minded people, and things are happening. So it, it was very inspirational, and uh, I can't wait for the next one, which will take place in a couple of years. It's the ECEEE conference, which is the European Council for an Energy-Efficient Economy. Right. Absolutely. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, obviously, we were at the uh, IEA Energy Efficiency Conference at the same time. Um, and again, I think that that chimes much with the much with the same of your assessment. It was really nice to be in a room of people with like-minded people and discussing ideas. And it was a nice buzz about the place. I was also at the Power Summit, the Euroelectric Power Summit uh, in Brussels. Uh, and again, had the same sort of vibe. Everyone was very excited to be back in the same room together. Um, and, and I think lots of ideas were sparking as a result. So yeah, really exciting times. Um, sadly, Michaela isn't feeling too well, so won't be joining us today, but we wish her a speedy recovery and hope she'll be back with us next time. This week, our guest is Jesse Jenkins, an assistant professor at Princeton University with a joint appointment in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering and the Andlinger Center for Energy and Environment. Jesse also leads the Princeton Zero Lab, a zero carbon energy systems research and optimization laboratory, which conducts research to improve decision making to accelerate rapid, affordable, and effective transitions to net zero carbon energy systems. Jesse, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity to join you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you. And, and we have so much we want to discuss from the current energy crisis in Europe to whole energy systems thinking. But let's start with your home country of America. And how has energy policy changed since uh, President Trump and since uh, Joe Biden's come into office? Is there now renewed momentum uh, if now there is a government that is more sympathetic to climate change? Well, it's certainly been a marked difference uh, you know, with the change in administrations and the inauguration of the 117th Congress with the barest of majorities for uh, the Democratic Party, which is um, unfortunately the only one of the two parties in the United States that seems to have any motivation to confront the climate crisis. Um you know, the ambitions of the Biden administration um, were significant and, you know, announced right away as the administration took office, including a, a renewed commitment to the Paris Agreement, 
uh, a new nationally determined contribution to reduce emissions um, to half of our peak levels, which occurred in 2005, uh, by 2030, and uh, a government commitment to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Now, of course, those are commitments and they need to be backed up by policy. Uh, and that's where things are a bit more challenging, as always. Um, there are a number of steps that the administration has taken within its executive authority, um, including leveraging government procurement, uh, embedding uh, climate policy into trade agreements, including a notable deal with the European Union on uh, trade uh, in steel and aluminum that will help uh, usher in, I think, the first low carbon buyers block uh, to try to um, unify countries that have a lower uh, emissions intensity and, and to trade preferentially amongst themselves. Uh, and uh, a set of regulatory uh, measures, um, probably most notably so far, the improvements in fuel economy standards for vehicles, um, which have been announced for, for the next few years. Um, and then they're, they're working on more aggressive standards that will come for, I think, 2027 through 2030 uh, model years. Now, in Congress, the uh, efforts to pass uh, policies to, to improve you know, our, our energy system and accelerate the transition uh, are really embodied in two bills. Um, we've uh, launched a project here at, at Princeton um, in anticipation of the new Congress and, and administration called the um, Repeat Project at repeatproject.org. That's for Rapid Energy Policy and Evaluation and Analysis Toolkit with the goal of assessing these bills as they're evolving in Congress and trying to understand in as close to real time as possible what their impact uh, on our energy transition is going to be. So that's been a really uh, fun and illuminating project that's really um, provided a lot of uh, insight to, to stakeholders, to, to policymakers, and to the media right as these debates are unfolding. And those two bills are really the um, Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, or now law, which passed in November. Um, and is has been now starting to you know have funding roll out through administrative programs to a variety of uh, energy related programs. That was mostly focused on uh, longer term technology enabling policies. So there's a large investment, really historic investment in energy uh, R and D, and particularly demonstration and early deployment of uh, more nascent technologies like hydrogen from. Uh, uh, from a variety of sources. They're gonna, we're going to build several hydrogen hubs throughout the country that use different uh, uh, energy sources, uh, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, all the silly colors. You can come back to why I hate the colors later if we want to. Um, but low carbon hydrogen uh, from a variety of sources, uh, carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, uh, advanced geothermal energy, uh, advanced energy storage. So a whole range of important tech enabling technologies that we'll, we'll need in the you know, 2030s and 2040s to dive towards zero emissions. Now, where we're struggling right now is on all the things that are going to drive deployment of mature technologies, wind, solar, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, the kinds of things that can make a real dent in our greenhouse gas emissions over the next decade and help us uh, ensure that we can meet that 50% reduction uh, in emissions by 2030. And that is embodied, embodied those measures are embodied in the um, uh, party line budget reconciliation bill that the Congress has been working on uh, for two years now, um, nearly two years. Um, the House passed its version of the bill after some negotiations uh, right around the same time they passed the infrastructure law uh, last November. And according to our assessment, that bill would really uh, do about 90% of what we need to do to reach our um, 
our greenhouse gas reduction goals in 2030. It would buy us really an enormous decade of progress, driving large-scale deployment of wind and solar, really you know, pushing uh, even further over the tipping point towards electric vehicles, accelerating energy efficiency and home electrification and other important measures. That bill is stalled in the in the Senate, uh, where many things go to stall in the U.S. Um, and where, for you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure some of our European listeners know this already, but we we have a you know 50 50 split in the Senate right now, um, and most measures require uh, 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure law was able to do that with support from uh, a dozen or so Republicans. Uh, but the uh, budget bill is a party line effort. And so it needs a, all 50 Democratic votes to pass the bill, along with the vice president casting the tie breaking vote. And uh, so far, that's been elusive with um, particularly West Virginia Senator so, uh, Joe Manchin um, having a number of important demands that uh, need to be worked out. The good news um, is that it seems over the last few weeks that those negotiations have been progressing between uh, Senator Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Um, very quiet talks. They're keeping the lid on, uh, on much of it. There's been very little uh, leaked to the press about where things stand. Um, but we are starting to hear that some of the major sticking points look like they're being resolved. Um, now, unfortunately, that means you know some concessions and further reductions in the impact of the bill relative to what the House Past, but I take that as a good sign that we're actually moving closer to final passage of a bill. That's really important because the game clock is winding down on this Congress. Um, they break for recess maybe today or tomorrow for the Fourth of July recess, oh. uh, and then they're really back in August. And that's uh, I mean, in the end of July, and then they're off again in August, and that's sort of the end of the of the timeline. So yeah, cool. uh, we're down to, to the last wire, but but progress is being made, and, and it looks like there's a chance a, a big bill could pass before the summer. Absolutely. And then you're into midterms and re-election campaigns. Yeah, and exactly. And then yep. you get stalled. Sounds like similar uh, uh, difficulties in the sort of legislative arm of Europe as well and, and how things are stalled in the European Parliament and the European yeah. Commission as well. Uh, so we've got a lot of experience uh, of that. What are the major barriers then, uh, other than political, uh, to the United States sort of energy transition? I really do think the biggest is, um, you know, passing a policy that's going to align the financial incentives behind the energy transition. Um, there's a lot of reasons to invest in clean energy and energy efficiency already. Those reasons are even more pronounced as we uh, focus on, once again on energy security and we see, you know, natural gas and oil prices uh, rising back towards record levels. Um, that said, you know, we do need, I think, national policy that's going to align the whole country uh, behind the kinds of investments that we need to make uh, at the pace that we need. You know, we will make this energy transition. The question is, do we do it uh, fast enough to meet uh, emissions goals in 2030 uh, and to reach net zero by 2050? Um, and I think for that, we do need federal policy that can provide the tailwinds and you know, m- momentum that we need for, for the transition. If that falls into place, then the question is how quickly we can scale up supply chains and industries, train the workforce that we need, manage the political challenges of an energy transition that will you know, leave some incumbent uh, communities and industries uh, in decline and others growing. So how can we align those benefits and, and costs so that we can sustain the political momentum we need over the decades ahead? And I think perhaps the biggest one, which I think was a challenge in Europe as well, is just we we have to build an enormous amount of infrastructure to accomplish this transition. We have to rebuild the entire modern energy infrastructure in less than three decades. 
you know, it took us maybe 100, 150 years to build our current set of energy infrastructures. And so we're talking about dramatically accelerating the pace of infrastructure build out and turnover relative to what many of us, you know, that grew up after the 1970s uh, are, comf- are used to. I mean, we built most of the modern infrastructure in the West in the post-war era, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. And we've sort of been living off the fat of the land since then and, you know, maybe maintaining the infrastructure, not so well in some cases, but not really building large scale infrastructure projects. Right. We don't you know, the, when's the last time you saw a new highway go in or a new very large uh, transmission you know, path. And yet that's exactly what we're going to have to do if we want to rebuild our energy infrastructure, build uh, potentially uh, triple the size of the U.S. transmission system by 2050, according to Princeton's Net Zero America study, um, build, you know, one to two terawatts each of wind and solar across the country uh, and develop and deploy a new national CO2 transport network and storage basins to capture CO2 and safely store it. So an enormous amount of infrastructure, and we're just not used to doing that. So building the social license and the kind of societal muscle memory again around, um, you know, the uh, both accepting, but also guiding in a way that builds social license, um, that scale of infrastructure. I hope that's the challenge we're dealing with, because that means we're, we're trying to go as fast as we can, and we're running into those kinds of challenges. Um, so hopefully, we, that's the kind of challenge that we can spend the next uh, decade or two uh, trying to overcome. I know you've written extensively about zero emissions power systems. From your perspective, what are the key technological solutions needed uh, for that to happen? Obviously, we spoke about a little bit about infrastructure and, and generation, wind and solar. Um, what, and what are the key areas of maybe uncertainty in that, in that area? Yeah. So in our work, we've tried to introduce a new kind of taxonomy for the building blocks of a low carbon energy system or electricity system. And there are really three big tools or, or categories that we need to fill out. And within those, there's a few different options, but you need to cover all of those um, uh, all those categories to, to really cost effectively and reliably decarbonize the grid. The, the first is where we have the sort of best progress recently, and that's in wind and solar power uh, and other weather dependent variable renewable energy sources, which we classify at largely as fuel-saving energy resources. Because of their variability, uh, at high penetration, the times when we need the most dependable capacity or the ability to you know, reliably generate power tends to occur exactly at the times when we don't have very much wind or solar power, right? At night, during a calm wind period or over a uh, multi-day periods when we have wind droughts or as the Germans call it, Dunkelflaute. Um, and uh, and so where we get the most value from wind and solar is not in necessarily shutting down reliable power plants, uh, but in avoiding the need to burn expensive fuels and to emit the CO2 and other pollutants that go along with those fuels. Um, and that is a lot of value that we get a, you know, a huge amount of value from that, particularly with natural gas prices soaring and, uh, and, and the need to cut emissions from coal and gas. Um, and so that's largely where wind and solar deliver their value. Now, what that means is as we push more and more wind and solar into the system, they start to displace more and more of the fuel burning resources and more of their output is concentrated because of the weather in times when we already have an abundance of wind and solar. And so their value in those time periods is fairly low. So we can do a lot with wind and solar. They're now the cheapest forms of electricity we can get in most of the world. And we can drive maybe half or more of the decarbonization we need with uh, just growing those fuel-saving resources. But that's not sufficient. We also need uh, what we call fast burst or balancing resources, which are helpful to manage the variability on the kind of daily and intradaily timescale. So on hours and, and up to diurnal, you know, overnight cycles. 
And that's where a battery energy storage plays a huge role. We've seen the cost of batteries plummet largely due to the large scale deployment in electric vehicles, which has driven a huge amount of cost reductions and innovation. Uh, and that means that we now have cost-effective grid-scale battery storage, which is really good at managing those sort of quick bursts of power. But like a sprinter versus a marathon runner, you don't want to depend on those batteries for long stretches. Um, you know, demand flexibility is another option. We can you know choose when we charge our electric vehicles, when we you know fire up our hot water heaters. Again, good for you know daily scale flexibility. But you're not going to want to stop charging your vehicle for three weeks, right? If you run into a prolonged you know wind drought. So so those are good for short bursts of energy or power. Um, and what that leaves is the category that's currently dominated by our fossil-fueled resources like natural gas and coal. And that's what we call firm resources or technologies that are available anytime you need them for as long as you need them. Um, and so those are really important complements to the weather-dependent variable resources like wind and solar or run river hydro um, and the shorter, you know, fast-burst sprinters like uh, batteries and, and demand flexibility. And so, again, today we rely primarily on our aging nuclear fleet and on uh, gas and nuclear plants for that role. To get to a zero carbon or net zero carbon grid, we're going to have to switch out all of those uh, fossil resources and replace any of the retiring nuclear power plants with new uh, clean firm resources or firm low carbon technologies. And there is where we probably need more innovation uh, over the next decade. Not necessarily laboratory breakthroughs. We don't need fusion to come to market you know, in the next five years, although that would certainly be nice. Um, but we do need to take technologies like advanced nuclear, advanced geothermal, um, carbon capture and storage, green or, or low carbon hydrogen combustion, uh, bioenergy with carbon capture, all of those technologies, which we fundamentally know how to build, you know, that we know the engineering principles and the science, but they're much less mature and higher risk than we would like them to be. Um, similar to where wind and solar were a decade or so ago, right? They're expensive alternative technologies in a nascent stage. And so like we supported wind and solar when they were expensive and drove their deployment and uh, made them into mainstream cost-effective technologies, we have to repeat that kind of success with those firm low-carbon technologies over the next you know, decade. If we do that, then in the 2030s and 2040s, we'll be really prepared to uh, scale up those technologies and displace and get off of the, you know, the remaining fossil plants that we are dependent on today. What do you think is the sort of most promising low-carbon firm uh, generation out there? It's hard to say, partly because, you know, it's a big world and we have to decarbonize all of it. And there are, you know, a lot of diverse uh, constraints and preferences out there in the world. And so for certain parts of the world, like the American West, um, I'm very bullish on advanced geothermal energy. Uh, the, you know, we've made a lot of progress in the U.S. on uh, horizontal drilling and hydraulic uh, stimulation of wells for the shale industry. That's now starting to spill over into the enhanced geothermal sector, where um, we have a number of companies, including one that we've done research with here. Princeton Fervo Energy um, that is, are drilling and, and developing their first commercial projects that could, if you know, if they're successful, it's showing that they can uh, produce uh, artificial reservoirs and uh, you know through hydraulic fracturing to to extract heat from the ground at, a, at temperatures they need to. Um, that could open up a you know terawatt scale resource in the Western United States and elsewhere in the world. That said, even there, you know, there's limits to where you'll be able to do hydraulic fracturing due to seismic risk. There's going to be, um, you know, 
limits to to places where they don't have the the thermal resource close to the surface and they'll have to drill even deeper you know so there are other technologies like closed loop geothermal um that uh ever which is a company i'm on the scientific advisory board for uh is developing that could work in places where um you don't need to do any you don't you can't you don't have to do any hydraulic fracturing you could do it right in the middle of a city uh, decarbonize district heating or provide firm uh power um, so, you know, there's a diversity of resources that are going to fit in different places. Some countries will probably turn to advanced nuclear, like, uh, you know, Japan, which really lacks a whole lot of other options. Um, you know, technologies that are safer and, and inherently reliable. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think in some places like the U.S. South and, you know, the Texas Gulf Coast region and the Middle East, where we have an abundance of low cost natural gas, we'll probably turn to carbon capture. Uh, to convert those, um, you know, gas uh, to, to use that natural gas without contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's one particularly promising technology, uh, the alum Fetvelt cycle uh, that NetPower is developing, which is a basically zero emissions option for burning natural gas. It's a, it's an oxygen combustion, so they burn it in a pure oxygen environment, and that means that all the stuff that's in the atmosphere, like nitrogen, that normally gets combusted alongside the gas, uh, doesn't produce pollutants. So you get pure CO2 and water, water vapor out of the combustion process. And the trick for them, the main thing that makes that actually practical, uh, there have been other attempts to do oxy, you know, combustion, uh, with conventional power plants, but that takes up a lot of power to produce the pure oxygen in an air separating unit. And then the benefit of the alum cycle is it's, it uses supercritical CO2 as the working fluid, which is a much higher efficiency cycle. And so they're able to get this boost in efficiency, which offsets the need to, uh, burn uh, to 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 convert uh, to use energy to um, produce the the oxygen for oxy combustion and so again you know these are technologies that are being demonstrated their first commercial projects in the next year two three four um, so we don't know ultimately which will succeed which will be cost effective um, but the good news is that there's a diversity of shots on goal right and and I think that's the key for the next you know decade is try as many of these technologies as possible support them through that demonstration and early deployment stage and if we do that I think we'll see um, uh, multiple clean firm resources emerge and, and complete the low carbon toolkit that we need to get to net zero emissions cost effectively quickly. Jesse, you, you spoke a lot about the supply side of the transition and the need to build out infrastructure you know, to essentially switch away from fossil combustion technologies to um, technologies that are zero carbon or very low, low carbon. Um, and to what extent does the demand side play a role in your work, in your modeling? And by demand side, I mean, not just reducing energy consumption through energy efficiency, but also, also flexibility, maybe distributed um, energy resources, you know, decentralized uh, solar, for example, and, and small batteries. Um, how does that sort of fit in to your, your modeling and how important do you think that piece is when you look at the overall portfolio of technologies? Yeah, I, uh, it, it's a, been a major focus of my research as well. I was a member of the MIT Utility of the Future study team, um, which took a big deep dive into the role of distributed energy and demand uh, automation flexibility um, and released a report in, in 2016 on the topic. Uh, it was actually the focus of my dissertation research was to figure out how to model these demand side and distributed resources in a large scale capacity planning model. Um, so I, I where, where we see two things. The first is, Uh, as you know, uh, Jan, electrification is central to all of the economy-wide decarbonization pathways that we see. Um, and so we need to be converting as much of the 
um, you know, building uh, transportation industrial demand as possible uh, to electricity. Um, that does two things. Um, one, it makes most of that process, uh, most of those processes much more efficient. So the final energy conversion to, from energy fuel to, in this case, electricity uh, to energy service like heat or mobility is far more efficient for an electric vehicle than an internal combustion engine or a heat pump than a boiler. And so that means we don't need to generate as much electricity as you might think to convert over. Um, and that saves a lot of primary energy in the end. Um, and then the second thing it does, of course, is it hooks, it takes us from a um, dependence on a single fossil fuel, typically, right? Um, you know, petroleum-based fuels for, for transportation or natural gas or coal for heating. Um, and it plugs us into a grid with a diversity of increasingly low carbon sources. And so in all of the, you know, studies we've seen from our group and many, many others, electrification is the, uh, you know, flip side of the coin of electricity decarbonization. And together, those do maybe 70% of the work of decarbonizing the grid, you know, range, you know, 60 to 80% of something like that of, of decarbonizing, not just the grid, I should say, but the whole economy. Um, you know, depends how far we can push electrification, you know, how quickly we can decarbonize the grid, but it's the critical linchpin in, in an economy-wide net zero plan. It also means we have to prepare for a lot of demand growth in the electricity sector, notwithstanding improvements in energy efficiency, which will also be progressing along the same time. Um, and so while the economy as a whole, we see it consuming a lot less energy due to end use efficiency and electrification, the power sector might need to prepare to more than double electricity demand by 2050. Um, and that's really going to take off in a nonlinear way. Right. So the next decade might start to see an uptick in growth, but probably in our modeling around 2030, we see an inflection point where, you know, the, the uptake of EVs starts to roll along, the stock turnover starts to progress, uh, you know, industry and buildings start to turn to electric heating. And all of a sudden demand is going to be growing at a pace we have not seen in the West since, um, you know, since the 1960s and 70s. Um, and so that's a, just a whole different paradigm to prepare for, for grid planning. And it means that all of that new demand growth needs to be as flexible as possible, or we're going to end up building in a large amount of infrastructure that we really use very infrequently. You know, distribution substations that are, you know, reinforced only for 10 hours of the year, you know, where we're at that peak demand or, um, batteries that are standing by just to help, um, you know, charge EVs on rapid chargers, right. That, you know, maybe don't need to, to do it at the right, at the same time, or, um, or, you know, maintaining gas fired power plants and infrastructure to act as, as backup for those systems. And since we already have to build an enormous amount of infrastructure, we really want to reduce that as much as possible and utilize the, the infrastructure we do build as much as possible. And so we see demand flexibility, um, you know, automated and, and smart EV charging, uh, you know, using hot water tanks. Um, I know there's a lot of tankless systems in Europe, but in the US, we have a lot of big uh, insulated water tanks in our homes. It's a big thermal battery sitting in the basement of every we building around. Few, we still have a few of yeah. those, but we've taken them out to save space, but there's still yeah. millions of them. And you could you could now add uh, thermal storage, ceramic brick, you know, storage or other options uh, to, to add to, to these systems in, for both water and space heating. So there's a huge amount of demand flexibility we can unlock. And what we see in our modeling is that does two things. As I mentioned, it reduces the amount of infrastructure you have to build and improves its utilization. It also significantly reduces the amount of batteries we need because demand flexibility, shifting and reducing consumption when prices are high, shifting it around to, to uh, optimize uh, cost, it looks a lot like a battery from the grid's perspective. And so it plays that fast burst balancing role I talked about before very well. And we see direct substitution. The more demand flexibility or the less demand flexibility we have, the less 
or more batteries we need to build uh, and the better we utilize the ones that we do build. And so that's another big savings. We don't need quite as much grid storage as a lot of people think we do if we can unlock that demand flexibility. I have a follow-up question on the on the flexibility point in particular, um, because technically in, in in the models you know, you can show the the benefits of that. It's it's already possible today with existing technology to do all these things. In fact, you know I'm doing that myself. I have yeah. a heat pump and an EV, and I run both devices, both assets, in a way that is grid friendly and you know minimizes carbon emissions and delivers cost savings at the same time to myself and to the system. Um, but there's, there's been a discussion in not just in Europe, I think also in some of the states in the US about how ready the public is to participate in such flexibility, even if it is fully automized. You know, there certainly is some pretty negative and pessimistic press coverage at times, which basically says that it's only the wealthy who will kind of benefit from that um, or people don't want others to interfere with the electricity usage. What, what do you make of sort of such skepticism and that pessimism and how can we persuade the public at large to buy into this vision of a much more flexible demand side to support decarbonization and to support essentially what is a smaller energy system overall that's going to cost us less to run. Well, so I'd say the first thing is that if we're going to do that, there are large savings to be had here. And those savings have to be shared in a motivating way with the flexible consumers. Um, and so that requires innovative business models and often regulatory reform. Uh, in you know, As you know, at RAP, uh, there's a, a significant need, particularly in the United States, for, um, for reforming mass market retail rate design to provide a lot more incentive to consume flexibility. Right now, we have in most of the country flat hourly volumetric rates that bundle in all of the costs of the grid, even those that are not driven by the volume you consume, like the how much grid capacity you need or how much generating capacity you need or policy costs that have to be collected regardless. Those all get rolled into a volumetric rate. Um, that does two things. One, it impedes electrification because we pay much higher than the marginal cost in much of the country for electricity much of the time. Uh, you know, here in New Jersey, I'm, you know, paying, uh, you know, 16 to 20 cents per kilowatt hour on average. The wholesale price is often three to four cents or six cents if maybe if you add in some, you know, some hedging costs and things like that. You know, so I'm paying two to three times the, what the actual cost of charging my EV or, you know, running my uh, my dishwasher actually is if I do it at the right times. Um, now, there are times when it's higher than the average, but, you know, most of the time it's lower. Um, and, you know, in California, where they're paying 40 cents a kilowatt hour, it's almost always higher than, than it should be. Uh, and even after you account, account for social, you know, costs that aren't priced into our market prices right now. So Severin Borenstein and Meredith Fowley and others at UC Berkeley have done some excellent work to, to show this. Um, and so that can impede electrification, first of all, because it makes my gas boiler look artificially more competitive relative to switching to uh, a heating, a heat pump or, you know, electric vehicle. But the other thing, the flat part of the rate does is it means there's really no value for me to operate flexibly. So I'm a grid nerd. I know that overnight, the, you know, in New Jersey, the prices are much lower. Uh, I know that the emissions rates tend to be lower. So, you know, I program my uh, water, my, my dishwasher to run at night. But like, that's just a charitable contribution to the world. I don't get any incentive to do that. Um, and the vast majority of people don't either. And so I think we need both mass market rate reform and the potential for new business models to come in and activate that potential, whether that's rewarding you utilities to do it themselves, creating space for aggregators of retail demand flexibility to move into this space and, and offer products to consumers, um, or just providing the incentive to the consumer themselves and then let them figure out how they want to deal with it. 
And I think there's probably three classes of people out there, um, you know, increasing size. One is, you know, the folks who I think of like, there are some people who like to get on Robinhood or E-Trade and, and day trade stocks, right? Because they really, you know, love to optimize all of that themselves. But that's a very narrow sliver of people. And there are probably going to be some people like that too, that want to have the app on their phone that they directly control everything. Um, I think that's the minor- minority of people, but there are tools already today to do that uh, effectively if you want to. The second category, I think, are going to turn things over to a third party um, to, to sort of manage it for them. Um, and I think of that, like most of us, our retirement portfolios are managed by some you know, index fund or some money market fund or other you know, managed uh, third party fund. And that's the same thing with you know, uh, trying to save money on your, your energy bill. You're going to hand that over to an, uh, an aggregator who's going to come in and provide you with a range of products and, and automate their control and, and aggregate them into markets to, to leverage a larger pool of customers and share that with you as in the form of a lower cost energy bill. And the final category might just be simply uh, willing to hedge the cost and not think about it ever, right? You just pay a higher bill for a flat volumetric rate if that's what you want, um, or a you know a flat monthly bill, uh, and then let the retailer um, manage that um, price exposure either by directly mitigating the risk or by just um, you know financially hedging it. And you know if we can allow the customer base to sort of uh, uh, filter out into those segments, then we'll end up with a much more flexible grid. Um, and you mentioned, you know, well, maybe only wealthy people will choose to, you know, buy these devices or, or be motivated enough to, to jump in. I'm not so sure that's true. They do have more capital. But if you're relying on a third party option, uh, lower income folks where electricity bills are a bigger chunk of their a disposable income might actually be more motivated to do this. Wealthy people, they'll be like, whatever, it's another $100. I don't really, you know, uh, care. But somebody who can save, you know, $50 a month where that really matters to their budget will be more motivated. And so there could be a market for those third-party aggregators to come in and provide the capital and the equipment um, and share those savings with motivated customers. The last point I'll make on this uh, is that even if not everyone participates, everyone benefits from efforts to improve the utilization of our grid and to lower the average energy cost. Because in New England, for example, where I spent you know seven years at, at MIT and Harvard, uh, 1% of hours of the year drive about 20% or sorry, about 8% of the uh, total cost of the, um, the grid and 10% of hours drive about 40% of the cost, if I'm remembering my stats correctly. Um, and so, you know, we have a disproportionate amount of cost borne in a few hours because that's when demand spikes. And so we build all this infrastructure that sits around and is poorly utilized. And if only those few price responsive, active, motivated customers drop their consumption during those hours, that lowers costs for everyone, not just for them, because the average price of the marginal price of electricity those hours plummets, the amount of, uh, of um, you know, rate based uh, transmission infrastructure we have to build starts to fall, um, distribution upgrades are smaller, and many of those costs are passed on to everyone, not just to the people consuming at the peak. Um, so, there, you know, it's a win win situation, but we do need to uh, pursue it carefully and, and with an eye towards equity as well. If we're going to do any rate reform, we have to make sure that those reforms are progressive and don't disproportionately harm uh, lower income customers that's all possible too I think that that uh, uh, you know, those that, that time period that you mentioned that that one percent in Europe is often measured um, in the ha- your half time at the World Cup final. Yeah, you know, that's when everybody um, takes a quick break, um, maybe turns a kettle on, and yeah, you know, that, that's kind of where peak demand, peak peak demand sits in in, in Europe. Yeah, we um, see that on I Super like Bowl your- Sunday here in the United States too. Uh, right, right. It's a good indicator for. Um, 
when demand is going to be high. I, I just I really like your point about low income customers and and flexibility because I I fully agree with everything you said, Jesse. Um, we're actually writing um, a report that has a working title, Fair Flex, which is about how do we make flexibility accessible mm -hmm. to everybody, especially to our low-income customers, um, because there's so much potential. If you lower bills, you know, provide them with the devices that they need, they don't need to interfere with the system at all. They just get lower bills. So there's, there's a huge benefit uh, in, in that. So yeah, very much support your, your kind of vision of how flexibility fits in. To the wider energy system, but then who's going to pay for that? The, those, all of these things come with a cost, and absolutely, we the lower low income households should be supported. But who then pays for it? Is it the government? Is it the utility? Is, is it the uh, product suppliers? The generators? Where should that money come from? Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Well, in many cases, there's a large amount of savings that's unlocked by those uh, those investments. And so over a period of time, particularly over the horizon that utilities typically think about and get their return on investment, there's more than enough savings to pay back the cost of that infrastructure and to share uh, in the near term in particular uh, those savings with the end use customer, with the, you know, with the lower income, uh, moderate income customer. So, you know, it, we should be doing things that are cost effective, that save much more uh, than the cost. And if that's the case, then there's money to, to spare there to compensate uh, the utility or the third party aggregator for providing the capital and the customer for participating in the program. Now, they won't save as much if, they, you know, it, uh, on a monthly basis as if they put the capital up front, but they won't have to put any capital up front. So they're not paying back uh, that opportunity cost. So the end use customer is, is still well off there in the sense that they're getting the, the saving stream um, net of the repayment of the capital. Um, so they're, you know, they're, not every investment will will pay off in that structure, but the most cost effective, the, the ones, the biggest savings would. Um, and of course, that's where we should target our efforts first. Um, and if, you know, there is a goal to combat energy poverty and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then this is a public good as well. And maybe there should be a portion of that cost that's covered by um, the general rate pace or by the, uh, by the government, ideally, since taxes are much more progressive than, uh, than retail rates and you know, utility bills. Absolutely. Um, Joe Biden recently used the Defense Production Act to ramp up the production of heat pumps and, and solar panels as well. But uh, on the heat pump side of things, you've, you've mentioned heating before uh, earlier in your answers. Um, are heat pumps going to have as big an impact uh, in the US as they look set to have in Europe? I hope so. Uh, we're definitely behind in the adoption rate. Um, and there are less options available for large um, central heating uh, systems, that which we often have in U.S. homes, than there are for sort of mini splits and, and ductless heating systems that uh, predominate in Europe, as I understand it. Um, but we uh, are starting to see those markets ramp up. Uh, again, it really depends on where you are in the country and how rates are structured for natural gas and for electricity, because that can really shift the economics of those two options. And, you know, in places, many places we, we have 
the same incentives for an efficient gas boiler as we would for an efficient electric uh, heat pump, um, you know, in terms of utility rebate programs and things like that. That's starting to shift. I think California is about to reprogram all of their energy efficiency funding towards electric options and away from gas options. Um, but, you know, so it really depends where you are in the country, how the economics work. It's certainly further behind electric vehicles uh, in terms of the apparent, you know, payback and, and economic value for U.S. consumers. Uh, but that is an area that we can, I think, tremendously accelerate, uh, again, with the right kinds of policies, particularly the sorts of tax credits and incentives that are um, in the reconciliation budget bill that's, you know, I guess I mentioned being debated right now. Um, if those pass and those credits become much more widely available and easily uh, claimed, um, you know, through refundability or other measures that, that make those easier to claim for more, more customers uh, or more people, then that, that could really accelerate uh, heat pump adoption as well. Um, Beyond that, I think it's really going to come down to state level policies who, um, you know, govern a lot of things like building codes and uh, utility rebates and incentive programs and rate design uh, to encourage adoption of, uh, of, of home heating um, electrification and industrial heating electrification, too, which is another uh, big potential option. So I'd say, you know, heat pumps, when we do the modeling, are always a big piece of it. I'm more concerned uh, about falling behind the pace of adoption we see in our modeling for heat pumps than I am for electric vehicles, which I think are progressing quite rapidly, probably more rapidly than I anticipated and many others. Um, so that is where we probably need more of a policy and regulatory push is on building electrification. And I would say that while a lot of states, you know, the majority of states have some kind of focus on renewable electricity or clean electricity, a good number of them, about a third, have zero emissions vehicles policies uh, modeled after California. Very few states have a good comprehensive building electrification strategy and policy in place. And so it is an area where we need to learn a lot, maybe from Europe. Um, I know the Netherlands and other countries really pushed in this direction recently. Um, and where I've been having discussions with New Jersey policymakers and others to, you know, try to figure out some states are going to need to pioneer successful policy and regulatory models and then hope that those replicate quickly the way we've seen for, um, you know, other uh, key policy areas like renewable portfolio standards or uh, model building codes or, or other kinds of things. I mean, the Netherlands are really interesting case. Uh, I calculated about 4% last year of all homes in the Netherlands have install a heat pump in one single year, which is extraordinary, really. Um, uh, that, that is unheard of. Uh, that pace of adoption is, I think, only the Nordic countries, Finland, uh, Norway, you know, they can kind of show similar installation rates. But it's, it's and it's, that's the Netherlands, which is basically 90%, you know, natural gas for central heating. So the transition happens very quickly, suddenly, because they have the, the kinds of regulations that you talk about that, that need to be implemented to really drive the market. I mean, my sense has always been just having incentives is not enough to get that market to scale. I think EVs are a bit different, you know, it's aspirational. They, they actually offer a better driving experience. Uh, and they, 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 yeah, people can touch them, see them. A heat pump isn't, isn't quite the same category, I guess, like a Tesla, um, uh, or, um, you know, a nice electric pickup truck or something like that. It's just in more invisible and, and just provides the same service as, as your previous, uh, heating system. Um, I actually have a could, connected question to, if well, I may. I was, I w was hoping I could return that, ask you a question, oh, which was, you know, give us a sketch of what the key policies are in the Netherlands so that, uh, your Americans can, can try to pursue those as well. Well, um, it's it's a combination, really. Um, I mean, in the Netherlands, because of the earthquakes that um, have been experienced uh, due to the exploitation of, of, of gas, 
um, there has been an announcement to phase out um, gas in heating, uh, you know, no more connections of new buildings to the gas grid, but also uh, now there's been a policy announcement made that by 2026, you can no longer install um, a standalone fossil fuel heating system. So you need to have either a hybrid system that could be a heat pump um, coupled with a, with a gas furnace, a gas boiler, um, or, um, or it, it, it could be a heat pump uh, just standalone. So that's sort of you know, a hard regulatory measure to basically stop the sales of, of, of fossil heating systems. But there are also generous subsidies for it. Um, and and the, the, you know, what you mentioned earlier, Jesse, the, the way how we tax uh, um, energy and how we put policy costs on electricity, the Netherlands have started to, to shift that. They understand that you know, there needs to be the right incentives in place on the running costs to make sure people actually switch from fossil heating to uh, to clean heating. So those are the kind of key policies that the Netherlands have introduced. Uh, I think we should have a whole episode on that maybe, David, at some point and talk about the Netherlands Absolutely. and how they've done do it because it's such a fascinating uh, case study, I think. I'd love to listen to that. <laughs> Thanks. I had a, I had a, um, a follow, actually, it's a connected question, but you know, I think it was in February last year, um, if my memory is correct, um, that uh, we had this massive energy crisis in, in Texas. And you, Jesse, were one of the people who all the journalists, I think, followed on Twitter. What's the latest on Texas? Like, what's happened? Yeah, and where, where do we have the latest outages? And What's happening in the markets, and you know what's what's the reason for it? And I think you're following kind of exponentially expanded because you were providing them with that information. Um, I mean, could you could you maybe say a few words about um, Texas, kind of reflecting back on it, kind of what what uh, drove it? Um, you know, heat pumps were mentioned as, as as a potential solution, and and you know, poor efficiency electric heating systems were mentioned as as part of the problem which is why i thought about texas but i'm just curious to see you know like like, we're like a year and a bit on um how do you see it um what was the main reason for what we've seen in texas um is it that was renewables which some people say were to blame um is it frozen up um you know gas generation what 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 was what was going on in texas basically i mean it's no it's a complex It's a complex picture, but if you could just try to summarize what you think went wrong and and, and going forward, um, what Texas is doing to prevent that from happening again. Yeah. So I think at its base, it's a good example of the kind of correlated failures and crises that we need to be more prepared for than we are. Um, when we often do power system planning, the assumption is that the outage rates for you know firm or reliable power plants are independent. Right? There's a chance that something breaks, and maybe there's a five or six percent chance at any time that your you know plant, uh, some of your thermal plants fail, um, and then the wind and solar are variable, and that you know sort of do their own thing, and and you have to plan around that variability, and demand is variable, and that you do you know that's sort of separate. But the reality is that those are all correlated through weather, through critical infrastructure like natural gas delivery, um, uh, and and so what happened in this case is a. Uh, you know, an unusual cold snap, not a totally unprecedented one, actually, when there was a previous example in, I think, 2011 and another one uh, in uh, maybe a decade before that as well, that also caused some amount of uh, demand shedding. And, and I, you know, after the crisis, I, I picked up the uh, North American Energy Re- Electricity Reliability Council's reports on the aftermath of those crises, and they read like they could have been written about the February uh uh, 2021 um, crisis as well. And so, you know, not a lot changed, unfortunately, between those. But what basically happened is it got very cold 
not just in part of Texas, but really across the entirety of the state, all the way down into the demand centers along the Gulf Coast region. And so you had a series of failures that were all correlated through those very cold temperatures. The first, you already mentioned the role of energy efficiency. Um, you know, generally it's quite mild in the winter in, in, uh, in Texas. And so many of the homes, particularly in those big cities, don't have very efficient heating systems. They have a lot of resistive baseboard heating. Um, they don't necessarily invest a lot in efficiency, uh, and insulation and things like that. Um, and where they do, it's mostly focused on the typical summer peak because it certainly gets hot in Texas. And so the focus is often on making sure that you're not spending too much on air conditioning in the summer, not necessarily on heating in the winter. And so what that meant is the demand in Texas is very responsive when it gets cold. It goes way up really quickly. Um, and so that was the first instigator of the crisis. There were record levels of demand for the winter set. Um, uh, and, and this is a system that primarily plans for a summer peak, not a winter peak. The second uh, major crisis is that uh, a large portion, at some points about 35% of the uh, supposedly reliable firm generators in the state, mostly the natural gas power plants, but also some coal and uh, one nuclear reactor, uh, failed um, in, at the same time period and for many days, um, not just for an hour or two. Um, and those failures were you know, really two sources. One uh, was, um, you know, it's frozen equipment. Uh, again, you know, these are generally warm climates. They're focused on the summer peak. And so a lot of equipment that would normally be inside in a well-insulated environment in a colder place, uh, was outside or in a very, you know, poorly insulated, uh, building. And so it got really cold and valves and, and critical measure, you know, um, meters and things like that. That's, I think, ultimately what knocked out the nuclear plant was a, a flow meter that they needed to have to know that there was enough coolant going wasn't working because it froze and, you know, the coolant was still going, but they had to make sure and, and you can't run a nuclear plant if you don't know. Uh, and so they had to shut down for, you know, precautionary reasons. And you had gas plants, uh, many gas plants also fail for uh, equipment. And then the other big source of correlation is that Texas is a big gas producing region out in the Permian Basin and, and elsewhere. And because of that, it has very little gas storage. It relies on just in time delivery from the pipe, you know, from the wells into the pipeline system uh, for what it needs. And the, um, the development uh, in the Permian Basin has involved a lot of gathering lines that sit right on the surface, where again, if you were up in North Dakota, you would have buried those lines or insulated them to prevent you know, freeze ups in the winter. But in Texas, they didn't focus on that. And so um, you know, there's a little bit of liquid and condensate in those lines and they can freeze up. Um, and when they do, they can block up compressors and, and damage equipment. And so much of the gas production also went offline. Um, at some point, about 40%, I believe, of the overall uh, Permian production was shut off because of uh, frozen equipment. And that meant that pipeline deliveries uh, also plummeted because it's sort of a just-in-time system. And um, there were, compounding on that, once they started blackouts, some of the compressor stations that were supposed to be on a critical equipment list and not blacked out ended up part of the rolling blackouts. And so they were knocked out and that further reduced the gas delivery. So you have these sort of cascading failures. Um, some people do heat with gas and, and gas deliveries prioritized to heating customers before electricity. So a lot of natural gas power plants also lost their gas supply, right? As they needed it the most. So this is an example of a, you know, not unprecedented, but not common, you know, extreme tail of the distribution of weather outcomes hitting a place. In other places, it could be extreme tails on the hot side or rainfall, right? Uh, you know, very rapid uh, uh, flooding and rainfall. And what 
we know about infrastructure systems is that they're resilient up to a point. And it's those extremes that really test the reliability and resilience of our systems. And you push something 1% further and it's fine and 1% further and it's fine, but then 1% further and the whole system crashes, right? And you get these correlated failures that take out not 1% or 2% of your system, but a third of it, right? And there is no way you can do rolling blackouts to manage a reduction of you know a third of your supply. Um, and so what happened was prolonged blackouts across major population centers, People froze to death. Um, people died of carbon monoxide poisoning trying to heat their homes with their stoves or gas stoves or with their camp stove or whatever, uh, or you know their cars and their garages. And um, you know we don't know exactly how many people, but it was you know dozens, if not more than a hundred, uh, died due to the the, the blackout. Um, and billions of dollars of damages to homes and, and buildings occurred when um, again poorly insulated pipes uh, for water in many homes froze. And then when it got warm again, thawed out and cracked and uh, major flooding damage occurred. So just a huge widespread, um, you know, uh, set of damages. And it shows you again why, you know, power system reliability is so critical, but also how intertwined it is with other systems like our water system, like our gas delivery system, and how these failures can be correlated across all of those critical infrastructure if we're not careful. I would say, you know, the renewables, there was some uh, some wind farms that froze up as well. Um, and, you know, again, if they were in North Dakota, they would have invested in de-icing systems that heat the blades. Uh, there they did not. And so some of the capacity was offline, um, but that was a fraction of the overall. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, we use wind and solar as fuel saving technologies, not as critical capacity that we need, uh, you know, to be there when we need it. So what I told Congress when I testified on this was, you know, uh, was that, these are technologies that are reliably unreliable. We know that we're not supposed to depend on them, and so do grid planners. And so they're heavily discounted in terms of what we count. In fact, the grid planner counts on nothing from solar and only maybe 6% of the overall installed wind capacity to help during these sorts of periods. And for most of the, of the period, they were overperforming that. What, we, what really was critical for the grid is that the technologies that we should have had counted on as firm, the ones we needed to be reliable, were unreliable exactly at the wrong time. And that's when people die. That's when, you know, when grids go down. Um, and so it does call into question, you know, are these firm resources really firm? Are we really weatherizing and preparing for the kinds of uh, extreme events that will test the reliability of our system? Um, and in Texas, the answer is no. And unfortunately, I think it's still no. They've done very little uh, in the intervening year other than politicize the topic and use it to score points uh, for Governor Abbott and others. Um, you know, and it's really not a encouraging uh, response to a, a you know a, a, an unprecedented crisis. And so they're now going through heat waves in in, in May and June that are setting new demand records and uh, you know similar stresses happening on the grid now. And I don't know that they're much better prepared than they were uh, a year uh, a little over a year ago. So that's that's quite unfortunate. And for, if I were a Texan, I'd be pretty furious about it. Is that going to have to change? You said the the regulators uh, don't they don't they're not they don't prompt they're not waiting for solar at all like they don't they don't rely on it. That's going to have to change surely in a in a hundred percent renewable energy. Um, no, not necessarily. Um, again, that you you'll count on them to produce a lot of the energy you need throughout the year, and that's where you get your value, and that you know means you don't have to burn natural gas and coal, and you you don't need CO two emissions. You know, you're saving on fuel costs because the average cost of electricity from wind and solar is far lower than than uh, than the alternatives. But during those times when you really need reliable capacity, we're going to have to depend on firm resources and some degree on energy storage, but but only for shorter duration periods. And so, you know, if you had a week-long crisis like this and a zero-carbon grid, 
you're going to really depend on a clean firm generating capacity to be there when you need it. Um, demand flexibility to help level out that peak load and, and batteries to help, you know, with the interdaily, you know, kind of cycles to, yeah. as much as you can. But you're not going to have a, a, you know, a battery that's going to run for, for five days necessarily. We may see very long duration energy storage technologies come to market alongside some of these clean firm options in the future. Again, they're in that sort of early demonstration stage. Um, but, uh, you're going to depend on technologies like that, either very long duration storage or, or you know, hydrogen generators or nuclear power plants or geothermal uh, to get you through those kinds of really challenging periods. Mm. And we're going to have to make sure that they're as weatherized and resilient to those crises as, as we need them to be. Otherwise, they really won't be firm. Um, so I do think it's a warning sign that we need to you know, question the reliability of even our most reliable assets and make sure that they're prepared for the changing climate extremes that we're facing. It's debatable how much the cold snap in, in Texas was related to climate change. There's arguments that it was because polar heating is, is weakening the polar vortex, which is the sort of currents that keep the, the cold uh, up in the north generally. And when those break down, that you get these ex excursions of cold air across the center of North America, and they can extend as far south as Texas. So there's an argument that this was a climate-related uh, you know, exacerbated issue. Yeah. But even if it wasn't, it's a good example of the types of extreme uh, weather events that are, we know are driven by climate change, like flooding, wildfires, um, and extreme heat that we're going to, that are going to test the reliability in the metal of our systems uh, going forward. As, as well as um, looking in research in the, uh, the US energy market, you, you obviously must be watching the, U, the European uh, energy crisis quite closely. Um, when you look at Europe from the US, what do you make of Europe's approach to the energy transition? Um, do you see any similar uh, challenges to implementation? Um, and where are the differences in, in terms of, of approach? I think that there's a lot of similarities, um, but I think Europe has a bit more focus. Um, and I think that's driven, you know, by slightly more functional democracies in many cases, right? I mean, much more functional democracies in some cases than the United States. So the ability to rally, you know, more sustained policy over the last decade and beyond. Um, uh, versus the United States, which has been quite sporadic at the national level. Um, also, you know, the United States is blessed with an abundance of fossil resources, and that's been an asset, particularly at times of geopolitical or geosecurity crises like now, um, to have, you know, to be energy self-sufficient is a, is a, you know, an asset that can be used, um, uh, uh, you know, for geopolitical purposes and other um, security reasons. Uh, but it also means we've had much lower cost natural gas uh, than Europe, uh, much lower cost oil in many cases. Um, that's a policy choice in many cases due to tax, tax differences. Um, and so that's been there's less consumer focus on the transition, I think, than there has been in Europe uh, historically. Um, I think the real test is how, how Europe and the United States respond to the current um, the current energy crisis fueled by the, the war in Ukraine. Um, and there, I think it's very likely, unfortunately, that the countries could diverge, although I'm doing everything I can to encourage U.S. policymakers to, to double down on, on the energy transition as well, because it is the most effective way to improve our energy security. I think it's pretty clear that Europe is going to, while in the short term, rely more potentially on coal power to displace gas or, um, you know, sign new LNG deals. 
um, that that is a you know a short term effort to to change the bridge, right? The bridge was supposed to be Russian gas in many cases, right? And now the bridge is going to have to look different. But to accelerate the transition across the bridge towards um, you know reductions in overall dependence on fossil fuels, so you see that in the Repower EU plan, you see that in national responses in the UK um, and in Germany and France and elsewhere. Um, really doubling down on the things that will not just provide alternative supplies of fossil fuels, which is maybe important in the mid, medium and near term, but to dramatically reduce the amount of uh, natural gas and oil that have to be consumed in the economy. I think if you look at the United States right now, and I wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times about this recently, it really shows the limits of the energy security, energy independence framework that has governed a lot of U.S. policy and particularly the politics of the Republican Party for you know at least the last decade. You know, in 2008, when Joe, uh, John McCain and, and Barack Obama were, were contesting the presidential election, we had a, the last oil price uh, and gas price spike. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden energy prices and, and costs were a big topic in the presidential debate. And we had the birth of the sort of drill baby drill chants on the right, um, you know, from Sarah Palin and others who popularized this idea. Well, the only thing the United States needs to do is to unleash, you know, U.S. fossil fuel production. That'll quench uh, energy prices and secure our economy. Um, we did that largely, even as we even as Barack Obama and, you know, and, and Democrats invested in renewable energy and drove down the cost of wind and solar by, you know, 70 to 90 percent. We also had a dramatic revolution from shale oil and gas that took the United States from the largest importer of oil in the world to a net exporter of oil and refined products in the last decade. That's a remarkable transition. Um, and the promise was that that would secure our economy and our, our country from oil crises. And I think if you look around right now, you can see the limits of that approach, right? We have a full-on crisis in the United States as well. Um, you know, inflation is predominantly driven by energy price spikes. Uh, if you look at the basket of goods that are driving inflation in the United States and in Europe, you know, we have six, seven dollar a gallon gasoline in California. It was three fifty, you know, three dollars and fifty cents, uh, you know, in, in, in January. Um, we have uh, natural gas prices that we've not seen since 2008. Um, and so what what's happening is that even though we are energy self-sufficient, which is certainly good from a security perspective, um, our economy is just as hooked on these global commodities and just as vulnerable to uh, global price spikes as they were, uh, you know, in, in 2008. And so, um, you know, the whims of a dictator or autocrat on the other side of the world can send a ripple or shockwave across the global economy and strike at consumers in the United States uh, or in Europe overnight and drive, you know, the cost of commuting and the cost of doing business for, you know, companies through the roof. And there's nothing we can do about that by drilling more. You know, it will not solve those problems. Um, it might help Europe alter, you know, diversify its energy supplies as an exporter to our allies, right, for security reasons, but it will not secure our economy and our households and our businesses from the vulnerability to oil price and gas price spikes. And so the only thing that will is the kind of stuff that we were already talking about in terms of the energy transition, right? Reducing our consu consumption of these fuels so that the next time a price spike happens, we are much less vulnerable. That actually has already happened to a degree. If you look at the improvements in energy uh, fuel efficiency of our fleet relative to 2008, while pr gas prices at the pump are starting to get back up to inflation-adjusted records, 
um, the actual bill that you pay when you fill up your vehicle is still quite a bit lower than it would have been in 2008 uh, under the same kind of prices because we've improved the efficiency of the fleet. Now, if you could get electric vehicles out to the millions of customers who want them um, over the next decade, that will dramatically insulate our economy from these kinds of spikes. If you can switch to um, to heating to heat uh, pumps for for buildings, you can improve the efficiency of our in, of our industries so they rely less on these fuels. All of that will substantially improve our economy and, uh, and our businesses' re- resilience to. Um, these sorts of shocks. Um, and it's really the only thing that will work. And so fortunately, that also helps accelerate the, the clean energy transition. We need to tackle climate change. There's a perception that energy security and climate change are at opposing ends. Uh, and that's really, at least in the medium and long term, not at all the case. And, and I think the, the test will be to see how, um, you know, how much foresight countries have as they respond to this near-term crisis. Yeah, we need to st- uh, stop drilling for more and start using less. I think that's that's um, such an important point, and I've, I I totally see in the you know in the short term, you know, when there's a real constraint on supplies, then you know, you, you got to diversify supply to some extent. But in in the long term, I think you're absolutely right, Jesse. It is it is about accelerating the transition away, uh, and and making sure we no longer depend to such an extent on. On fossil fuels, which um, are um, traded globally, and um, uh, they're always going to be uh, volatile. Those prices, uh, to some extent or another. Uh, I know that some folks have raised the idea that we'll we'll just be switching our dependence on you know fossil fuels for dependence on rare earth metals or lithium or other commodities like that. Th- there is some truth to that. We'll need to make sure that we have secure supply chains that can scale with our needs. But it's a very different kind of challenge because that goes into the new infrastructure we're building not the stuff that's already out there. So whatever we've deployed, the wind farms that are operating, the, the, the electric vehicles that we're driving the next time the crisis happens, they will be fully insulated from any kinds of commodity cycles, right? It's you're driving your car already. You don't need to buy more lithium to run your electric vehicle. So um, it's a different kind of challenge. And I think many who are trying to slow down the energy transition are raising this as a red herring to try to make you know people just as afraid of you know lithium commodity cycles as they are of uh, oil and gas. They're really not the same thing, and they do not have the same scale of consumption at all. Um, you know, it's orders of magnitude. The amount of of oil we <laughs> dig up and move around and burn uh, across the world every year, every day, is a staggering amount. On nearly a hundred million barrels of oil um, a day. You know, we're not consuming anywhere near that much lithium or cobalt or other things like that. So it is a challenge, one we should definitely be proactive about, but not at all a reason to slow down the energy transition or to undermine the the benefits of that kind of transition. Just a final question on that. Is there anything that the US can learn from Europe's approach to getting off gas and getting off Russian gas? Is there anything that America can learn from that in its own in its own backyard? Well, I think we've, you know, we've already talked about the kinds of accelerated measures that, um, you know, the Netherlands is taking to to switch off of gas heating. Um, we've seen electric vehicle adoption rates go through the roof across European countries. You know, I think in uh, in the UK, in the first quarter, it was over 20% of vehicles sold were, were electric or plug-in, um, you know, and that was up from, that's like double the last, you know, the quarter of the year before. Um, and And so if we can, you know, see the same kind of focused on on the demand side of the transition 
and on on clean electricity because we do consume a, a large amount of gas in power generation, and so we can not only reduce consumption uh, on the household and you know transportation business side, but also by diversifying our power sector. Um, and you know, and we're seeing Europe do all of that right as a way to to get off of Russian gas. Again, yeah, I think in the near term. Uh, in the next couple of winters, Europe will need to burn more coal as well to quickly get off of gas in the power sector. But that's going to be a short term, you know, couple of winter uh, cycle. Um, and by the end of, uh, you know, winter of 2023, 2024, um, I think Europe could basically be off of gas and coal in, you know, in the power sector um, or off of gas and back to current levels of coal consumption in the power sector by the end of the second winter, you know, coming up, um, mm-hmm. you know, by accelerating the deployment of renewable energy and and improving uh, end use efficiency and electrification. I mean, that would basically be accelerating the transition that was already underway, but shortening the timescales. And it's, it's kind of remarkable to see, you know, what a war will do for people's perception of what's possible. Um, you know, I think when the war began, there were many, uh, you know, a, a very serious person that quickly, you know, pontificated that it would take decades to free Europe from uh, Russian fossil fuels and that they'd never, you know, be able to do it. Um, and now, you know, we're looking at a 90% reduction in oil imports by the by this year, um, an elimination of coal imports, and hopefully, I think, a complete elimination of natural gas um, by the winter as well. I know that's not the current uh, uh, EU strategy. To reduce uh, um, reduce consumption by about two thirds by this year and get off it entirely by 2027 or 2030. Um, I think that through a variety of additional measures, we've done analysis in our group here um, that complement the Repower EU plan, including a greater alliance on uh, in the short term on coal to quickly reduce uh, gas consumption and power, um, and a recalibration of storage targets um, to reflect the reduced consumption that is likely over the next couple of years. You don't need to store as much gas this winter as you did last winter if reduction, if gas demand in Europe is down substantially, um, that uh, it would actually be feasible for Europe to get entirely off of Russian gas this year. Um, we started this analysis right after the war began um, because we knew that natural gas would be the principal challenge for Europe um, to transition away from, given the reliance on pipelines to import so much from Europe. Um, and, uh, and we also knew that it would be the most potent economic lever that the West would have um, uh, on Russia as well to reduce their revenues that are currently flooding in, uh, in you know, tens of billions of euros a, a month uh, to, to Russia that's fueling you know, both sides of the war, unfortunately. Um, so, so we've completed analysis of both the, the power sector and the gas networks in Europe to make sure these, these strategies are feasible. Uh, and there's a few different combinations of you know, demand side measures of uh, fuel switching to gas uh, from gas to coal. Um, and um, uh, uh, and energy efficiency improvements that can um, that can get Europe all the way to to you know end independence from Russian gas this year if if the demand is there if the, the necessity is there. Jesse, thank you. I'm sure we could uh, speak for much longer on on the various differences between the EU and and America and the the barriers America America is facing. Um, just before we go, I'd like to really I'd like to you to look into your crystal ball uh, and just. Tell us what you see in 10 to 20, maybe 30 years time, what the energy spectrum looks like, uh, what the energy mix looks like. So I, I think that really, you know, 10 or so years, 10 to 15 years from now, I mean, I have a, I have a four and a half year old uh, son. And so I think about like when he gets his license at 16 in the US, right, to, to drive, you know, he won't call the vehicles at the lot electric vehicles. They'll just be vehicles. They'll just be cars and trucks, right? Because they'll all be electric, I think, at that point. Um, you know, and and they'll be the classic cars rolling around the, you know, the 
the classic 2010, you know, uh, Chevy Camaro or something <laughs> running on gasoline, right. That, that people are excited to see every once in a while as an exotic, exotic vehicle. But I think that, I think the electric, the transition of, of mobility to electric, uh, vehicles is going to progress much more rapidly than many people, um, you know, thought was possible, including myself a few years ago. Um, and we're at this really fundamental tipping point now where the, you know, the whole automotive sector is is really kind of recognizing that electric is the future. And, and once the capital starts to flow there, as it is for these companies, um, you know, it's really going to uh, snowball. And so I think, you know, really, we tend to underestimate dramatically. Uh, well, you know, with these sorts of exponential trends, we tend to maybe overestimate what's possible in the short term and then dramatically underestimate what's going to happen in the long term. And I think this is a good example of that really over that 10 to 15 year period. Um, you know, I think we're going to go to you know, pretty much full uh, electrification of, of new sales. So that'll take time to roll over into the fleet. I also hope that we are really, you know, seeing the majority of our electricity coming from renewable energy, from wind and solar uh, by that sort of 2030, 2035 timeframe. Um, and that we're grappling with these challenges around how to go further, right? How to deal with the social license to build more infrastructure, to expand transmission, to tap offshore wind, and how to scale up the new uh, clean firm power technologies that we need to uh, to deliver the rest of the emissions reductions. And so I think that's where we could easily be headed. Um, and you know, I think we need a policy push to, to make sure that the odds of getting there are as high as possible. Um, but I'm confident that's dire the direction that we're headed. That's great. Um, before we go then, uh, we ask all of our, um, we, we go around the table and uh, ask what caught my eye uh, in the last week or so. Uh, Jan, what caught your eye? Well, actually an old report from the IEA uh, on the future of cooling, um, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I read it in the context of the heat waves we had in Europe last week and at still ongoing to some extent, uh, with temperatures being 40, 45 degrees centigrade in, in some areas or even more. And um, I've been interested in this for a long time because you know, if we get more heat waves, extended heat waves, the demand for air conditioning uh, will go up. It's already going up. And we, we know from the US experience uh, and also from European uh, localized examples that uh, you can get sudden spikes in electricity demand because of you know, additional air conditioning. So um, super interesting report that looks at kind of where air conditioning systems are being used in which countries and why, the history of that, and also where it's going to be maybe by 2050. And uh, it's yeah highly recommended if you're interested in the impact of heat waves on electricity demand. That That's a really good report. That's literally interesting, obviously, yeah, with global warming, everything, you know, cooling is going to become much more of a of an issue, absolutely, and especially in, I always find it interesting how we're going to do it with these buildings that were built for colder climates and, and how they uh, are going to adapt to a more, a warmer environment. Uh, Jesse, how about you? What caught your eye? Well, so I just got back uh, from the first ever in-person macro energy systems uh, workshop uh, at uh, Stanford in Palo Alto, California. Um, this is a, a new or a relatively new uh, effort to pull together the uh, research community uh, around, you know, macro scale energy systems research, the kind of stuff that underpins much of our analysis of energy transitions. 
um, and an area that is really, you know, because of its nature, inter inherently interdisciplinary and spread out across a variety of, uh, you know, sort of academic homes, different departments, different journals, different conferences people go to, different ways in which they conduct their research. Um, and so to kind of create a center of gravity for all of that, um, we I've been part of the steering committee for the macro energy systems community for, since uh, uh, 2020. We've been really trying to bring together uh, a new kind of center for, of gravity for that research community. Uh, we had an initial workshop in, um, it was supposed to be in summer of 2020 and uh, of course wasn't in person we ended up going virtual uh, and so this is the first time we've been able to gather in person um, it was a wonderful two-day workshop right I, I stressed the work part of the workshop we really saw some really excellent presentations but also um, got to work uh, thinking about the future of the field and the community and how we can uh, bring this together further um, and so just really delighted to see that come together and to uh, see my colleagues in, in person uh, and to hear about the really important you know work that they're doing on energy transitions and equity and decarbonization and technological innovation and uh, you know dealing with the, the you know the social opposition to, to new, you know, technology deployment and infrastructure, all the kinds of uh, challenges we've been talking about here. So if you're interested in that uh, realm and you're, you know, you're a researcher or a research adjacent, the consumer of this research, um, check out macroenergysystems.org and, um, you know, we're, we're growing the community. So uh, the more the merrier. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. We can put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, for me, I is going to look uh, a, a little bit dodgy, but it's actually yeah. And I'm, I'm I've been playing with the um, the new wrap uh, blueprint um, that was released, I think, uh, earlier this week or uh, late last week. The power system blueprint um, and how you know wrapped, put together all of these sort of um, ideas and at a pathway to a, a clean and and renewables based grid. Uh, so I've been playing around with that. It's a really interesting sort of. Uh, user experience. Um, as you go into the blueprint, you can click on the various different parts of the uh, energy system that you want to learn more about, uh, and um, yeah, just seeing where where you where RAP sees the the pathway to a, a net zero economy. And I think it's uh, yeah, such an interesting um, uh, tool to have. Thanks for the free advert, uh, David. Um, much much appreciated. No, it's it's a great tool. We're gonna um, update it over time and make it better. And we're looking for feedback. And it's it's not like um, what what Jesse is doing because technical modeling. We kind of take that as a given. But we're looking at um, like if you want to call it regulatory modeling. Like where do we need to be by by twenty thirty five with regulation, with market design, with with all these different policies to to, to mm. meet those really ambitious scenarios that. Um, People like Jesse have been modeling for years. How do we actually get there uh, from a sort of regulatory point of view? So um, uh, please do provide us with feedback. Um, you can uh, do that on Twitter or by email. There's a blueprint email address, I believe, on the website. We would love to, to hear what you're thinking and, and incorporate any, any, any feedback, really. Definitely, we can do that uh, as well. And I say it's just great to the way it's laid out. You can see how it's all interconnected as well. So I think that's just really fascinating, really useful uh, tool to have. Um, my thanks to Jesse, to Jan, and to uh, our producer Anna. Um, that's all of the time we have today. If you have any thoughts uh, or questions of anything we said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Uh, Jesse, I'm at, at Jesse Jenkins. That's J E S S E Jesse. Um, and yeah, very active on Twitter. So see you there. Uh, Jan? Uh, Jan Rosenau. All one word. You can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again very soon.